about that. All right, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Zechariah. The book of Zechariah. Young people, on Wednesday night, we've been going through this book. And um, so hopefully you'll just jump right in. We're in the fifth vision. Zechariah is seeing a vision. I've got some uh, pictures that maybe would be a help uh, to you this evening and uh, to be able to, uh, to walk through a little bit tonight to be able to see what's going on. Uh, I don't want to read the, uh, the, the vision just quite yet. We'll go through it. We read it in full last week. There are some notes still, a few notes that if you didn't get last week, some of the young people may want to grab them on the way out just to be able to indicate I'm not um, really following those notes. Uh, there's no blanks or anything that you need to fill in, but just something that you can take home and be able to walk through in this vision. And so this is the fifth vision uh, between chapter, uh, chapters 1 to chapter 6. There he's going to see eight visions all given in one night. And one right after another. There seems to be a little bit of a break after the fourth vision where he, um, he's kind of in this trance or he's in this sleep. And then the angel meets him in chapter 4 and verse 1 and wakes him up. Or as a man that would sleep, he wakes him up. And uh, he's, he's kind of heavy and weak because of this vision that he has seen. And uh, so I just I kind of want to show a little a couple pictures. I have to turn this on here. I just want to go a couple pictures here. This is a picture when I was in Israel on uh, Mount Arbel. This is uh, on the southwestern portion of the Sea of Galilee. You can see a pretty view of the Knesset. Uh, that would be uh, the Valley of Galilee right there. Just kind of opens up. There's a mountain range of northern, uh, northern Galilee and upper Galilee mountains uh, to the north. And then there's a mountain range. I'm standing on the edge of, of a cliff and a mountain range that goes south towards Tiberias in the southern portion. Um, and then right there just on this area, there is a large plain. And a lot of fruits, uh, both of those fields that you'd see down there in, uh, many of them are banana fields and uh, olives, oranges, and uh, you can kind of see that way off in the distance up farther north. So this would be uh, the city of Capernia up in this area. It's kind of cloudy or hazy a little bit that day. Um, but what I want to draw your attention to is a little area on the Sea of Galilee just right here on the corner. And uh, this little area, uh, you can see this is an older picture of that, looking from the same distance from the same area. This is, um, this is what it used to look like probably in the early 2000s. Um, and uh, this is what it looked like when I saw it the first time in 2015. Um, they have opened up an active dig there. It's the city of Magdal or Magdala. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's uh, as an excavation of a village from the first century around the time or in the, in the time of Jesus. And uh, they're, they're digging. And then, of course, they also built, there's a, there's a church there, a Catholic church that's been built. And the main area, um, there's a little, little uh, you can see the buses, the tour buses are going to be parked there. I think the next picture uh, that I show is a picture of me standing in front of the sign right there. All right, so this is standing in front of the sign. You can see it's very um, a makeshift-like uh, welcome center, all right? This is like this. Now, if you take the trip to Israel next February with us in 2025, 
um, this whole area has changed now. It's modern. They've got a huge welcome center that's there um, and, and a museum and everything are built around the dig. So you can actually walk around the dig. I'll show you some pictures in a minute. But the previous photo was taken up on this edge up here on top of Mount Arbel. And that's just a great overlooked spot uh, over the Sea of Galilee, but you see it looking down uh, to Magdala. Um, in Magdala, they built this structure over the top of a... Uh, a, a synagogue, a first century synagogue that they have discovered. And that's why this is a popular touristy area and it was a very um, major archaeological dig and find about 2006, uh, 7 or 8, around that time, the mid-2000s. Um, and uh, they found this. It was a first century Jewish synagogue. Um, they had found, um, they, this was a, they had not found one like it uh, that dates to the first century. So some of you, if you've been to the city of Capernaum, and I showed some pictures of that, um, the synagogue in Capernaum, actually the structure that is there that you walk on, the flooring that you walk on, is a fourth century synagogue. The foundation is a first century synagogue, but when you walk there as a tour, if you go there, um, you see a fourth century Byzantine synagogue structure. You can see the foundation on the on the bedrock, but this is this is one of the only this is the only first century synagogue that's been excavated and found, and that's why this site is uh, pretty uh, popular. It's it's much smaller than the one in Capernaum. The one in Capernaum was much bigger than this. And if you stand there, you see the pillars and everything. This is really small compared to um, to the one in Capernaum, but it still has the same layout, the same structure. Um, it had four pillars. You can see the bottom of a portion of one, two. There's a third one here. This one is missing. It's been toppled over. Uh, four pillars that would have um, uh, kept the structure up. I think the one in Capernaum had like eight pillars. That would tell you how much bigger um, that, that room was. And it had an intersection right here, the intersection where the adult men would have come and gathered around and sat down on the um, on, on the chairs and listened to the rabbi as he read from the scripture. And then it had an outer section out here around the out portion where uh, the children and the women could come on certain occasions and listen. They weren't allowed on the inside, but they could listen from the outside of the portion of the synagogue and hear the scripture read um, in, in that way. So there's kind of a, a lobby area. The original flooring that they found from the first century, a mosaic flooring right here, um, which would have dated to the early Roman Empire there in the first century. This guy's putting up some bricks that have fallen, obviously, because it was destroyed. In fact, the, the stones that he is putting back on was all destroyed in 67 AD. So Titus, when he came as the Roman general to come to destroy Palestine and eventually burn Jerusalem to the ground in 70 AD, he came here and archaeologists believe that they destroyed Magdala in about 67 AD, which was when this city and this uh, synagogue would have been destroyed. And so this guy is putting back those stones, trying to fit them back into the way they fit. So it's like a puzzle piece in what he's doing. Now, the reason this synagogue is important is, yes, it's a first century synagogue, but one of the, most ma the, the major discoveries about this synagogue is this stone right here in the middle of the room. Um, it, it, it's very important in the fact that it, it has some unique features. It's the, one of the only stones 
um, that they've ever found in the center of a synagogue in this fashion, in this way. And it's purposely put there. And when the synagogue was destroyed, it was where it stood. They don't really know what the stone is for. Some have indicated that it's possibly used as a podium where the rabbi would have sat and brought the scroll out and rolled it over and, this, and it would have been like a desk, okay, um, in, in that found. That there's never been one that has found like it in all of Israel. They found it right in the center of the area of the synagogue. Um, and in the Jewish culture, you would sit down to speak and you stood up to read the scripture. And this would have been maybe a, a lifted table of some kind. It's called the Magdala Stone. If you're interested, you want to Google it later after the service. There's a lot of articles that shows more detailed pictures and you can read it. And when we go to Israel, we'll go to this location. Pretty much every tour group is going here now specifically to see this synagogue and this stone. And the second reason this stone is important is because on this stone, you can see us, this is a little modern. You can see this is the second time I went. There's a modern building that's built up off to the side. And uh, you can see it a little bit. There's a lot more structure. That, um, that tin can uh, welcome center is now a nice, beautiful uh, glass facility up there on the top. They, they, they've added some money to it. Um, but I'm just kind of showing you this is the way that they found it. And uh, just showing this picture here, I'm going to zoom in on this picture. And then, Mr. David, if you could zoom in on this spot right here a little bit more just to, to make it a little bit bigger. If you notice, one of the things about this stone is its carvings. On the carvings, um, I have to go back one more, see if you can do that. Uh, on the carvings uh, in the middle, the carvings on this stone all would connect to the temple. And it's the way it was situated is it was situated facing the location of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. And on the section of the stone is, uh, are some articles that are, that are engraved into the stone itself. And uh, so as he's piddling back around here, on the section there would be a couple columns that were set up onto the side. On those columns uh, they had two pillars Two jars are sitting next to, um, uh, on the side. And uh, you can see that. There you go. He blows it up. So you can see two columns here off to the side. There are two jars with two handles on each side. There is some kind of table structure right there. And one of the interesting things you can see right in the center of that. And what is that? It's a menorah. A seven Lampstand menorah, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, um, a candlestick. Along the sides, you may not be able to see it, all the, are the pillars. There's the pillars here. This is a, right here is a, uh, is an oil lamp. If you've seen some of the first century oil lamps that are, are, are uh, taken that way. Um, and then there's some engravings on the top and there's a, a, a different engraving on the backside. And um, I didn't uh, show you all of that. Archaeologists have dated this stone to the first century and have indicated that the person who carved this stone carved it as an eyewitness of the events that he's carved, of the things and the articles that he's carved. So in other words, this, this menorah, there was only one of them in Israel and it was inside the temple. And the one who carved this stone would have 
would have carved this stone specifically as an eyewitness to the articles that he's seen. These articles on uh, the stone itself depict articles and things that would have been seen inside the temple. There's a section on the top that indicated the symbolism of the Holy of Holies. Uh, There's some leaves and there's some uh, different things that are on there uh, that that picture this this design and this engraving. And they believe that it was... um, it was specifically a person who, who, had, who worked in the temple, would have seen these articles, and would have made this stone specifically as a religious piece for this synagogue to, to be used. Possibly even, and I would believe this, that Jesus was in this room, preached in, spoke, and read from this synagogue, even possibly using this stone as a place where he would have stood behind when he preached. Scripture tells us in the book of Matthew and Mark that he preached in every village and in every synagogue um, in Galilee, which would have included uh, this synagogue. Um, Now, that stone is not the exact stone. It's now in a museum, and they put a replica back. Okay, so they don't want anybody coming in there and, you know, you know, graffitiing their name all over it. So they've got it in some kind of giant vault somewhere. One of the last times I heard that it was actually in a museum in Rome on, uh, on, ex, uh, um, on loan. And so anyway, I'll jump back over to this piece so you can just kind of see it. The reason I point this out is because on this, on this stone is the menorah, the lamp that Israel saw as, um, as its symbol of its nation. And I showed you a picture of the menorah last week and what it, what it looks like and what it represents and um, how, how it's used. Here's a picture of uh, the menorah with a priest that is lighting the menorah. You can notice he uses a, a jar uh, right here, would have brought the oil in. There's a pan down here that the oil would have been poured in. And then now he's pouring in the oil to uh, wet the wick. And then he's going to light it. And he would have done it twice a day, um, the menorah. And there was only one in this fashion. Um, so in Zechariah chapter 4, the fifth vision of Zechariah, he sees a menorah. But it's not just like this one. In our description from last week, it's a weird type of contraption. It's a menorah, because the Hebrew word menorah is used in this chapter. That's what he's seeing. That's the word lampstand or candlestick in the King James. But it is the word menorah. And uh, it, was, it was used at seven, seven candlesticks, as it says in this chapter. In verse 2, he said, what do you see? And I said, I have looked and behold... A menorah, a candlestick, a lampstand, all made of gold with a bowl upon the top of it and seven lamps thereof. And then he describes seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof. Now as you see this, the description of this menorah. Zechariah is a priest. Um, He's from a line of priests. He's probably seen this. He, he knows what a menorah is. He's very familiar. He's helping Zerubbabel build the temple. And uh, they probably have this artifact already ready to put into the temple when it gets finished building. I showed you a picture last week. Outside of the Temple Institute is, uh, is a menorah this size. I think it's over six feet uh, tall. 
and, um, uh, and, and all made of gold. It's in this glass armored case, and you can go and see it and get your picture by it, but it is designed and made for the new temple that, that Israel is seeking to build one day in the future. This seven lampstand that he sees, it's all golden. Now, I want you to know that the menorah in the, was, uh, in the temple was a key piece of, of, of furniture, Uh, The temple menorah had seven branches. That's what you can count them, seven branches. Seven is the number of perfection in in the Old Testament. It is connected in this vision. If you notice, in this vision, it's called, he's, he's given the seven eyes of the Lord. That number seven comes up again in this vision as the eyes of perfection. We talked about that last week, his perfect vision. I want you to also notice that the Holy Spirit is referred to in the Bible as the seven spirits of God. Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 4. We're going to go to one apocalyptic passage to another apocalyptic passage. Two chapters. In Revelation chapter 4, John is is, um, transported into the throne room of God. And just a beautiful chapter in chapter 4 and 5, he sees the glory of God sitting upon his throne. And in Revelation 4 and verse 5, notice the language of what John is seeing. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunders and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire that were burning before the throne. That's the description of a menorah. Seven lamps burning before the throne, and then in the description, he's told what those lamps are, which are the seven spirits of God. These are not angels. This isn't a description or metaphor of the Spirit of God. Notice it comes up in chapter 5. Look over in chapter 5 and verse 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain. Having seven horns, seven eyes. Notice seven is always used in, this, in, the, in the term of perfection. Which are, the seven eyes, are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So here you have a description of, uh, of the term seven. And I believe that this is a rendition of God the Son, who is the, who is the Lamb, who was slain, standing before God the Father, who is sitting on the throne. And around the throne are the seven spirits of God, which is the perfect spirit, the Holy Spirit himself. So he's described in the New Testament. However, take your Bible and then turn back to Revelation chapter 11. No, not Revelation. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah is important in helping us understand prophecy because Isaiah is, um, is, is the major prophet that comes at the beginning of all of the prophets. And God gave Isaiah some unique prophecy concerning himself. But I want you in Isaiah chapter 11. We spent some time in Isaiah last week. Isaiah chapter 11 in verse 2. Listen to what this Isaiah says. After he says something about the branch in verse 1, which we read a couple weeks ago. Verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom. The Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of wisdom. The Spirit of understanding. The Spirit of counsel. The Spirit of might. The Spirit of knowledge. And the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. Was anybody counting? Okay. 
there are seven manifestations of the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of knowledge, the Spirit of might, the Spirit of counsel, and the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. No, no matter where you are, whether you're in Isaiah, Zechariah, Revelation, or you're in today, God always sees. And His Spirit is His manifestation of His all-seeing eye. Just a historical fact, the Jewish Talmud forbid the use of a seven menorah lampstand outside of the temple. Now the Talmud is Jewish tradition, collection of Jewish rabbis that collected that would have been also actively being gathered together during the time of Jesus. So they forbid a seven lamp menorah outside of the temple. There should be only one. The Jewish people even to this day. During the Feast of Lights. Does anybody know what the Feast of Lights is in the Jewish festivals? Hanukkah. Um, A nine branch lampstand is used. Because it is used outside of the temple. Not seven. Nine branches for the Hanukkah menorah was made and is used and is still used today. So what is it that the menorah symbolized in Israel in the temple? Now you got the Hanukkah menorah that's there. But what did the menorah symbolize for Israel? It symbolized, as we talked about last week, their unique role as bearers of the truth of God. This was shown last week in several Old Testament passages. And one of them, if you're keeping notes, the one that I got lost on was chapter 40 and verse 8. It wasn't chapter 40 and verse 8. It was chapter 41 and verse 8 that talked about his spirit or his servant Israel as an instrument that is used for God's glory. The menorah reminded Israel of their role as the light bearers of the world. They were, Isaiah said, they were to be the light of the Gentiles, or the light to the Gentiles. Now notice something about this menorah that he says here in uh, Zechariah chapter 4. There is, there's something unique about this one that's not like the one that he had seen in the temple before. There is a bowl on top of the lampstand. That's kind of weird, because in the actual temple, a priest would come in, he would carry a bowl that had oil in it, and he would carry pitchers in it, and he would use that, he would dip it in there, and he would pour the oil in the lamp, in in the tubes of the lamp, so that the lamp would burn. And he had to do that on a daily basis. But there was no, there was no bowl on the top. In this lampstand, uh, Zachariah says he sees a bowl on top. Uh, this, is, this is interesting in what he sees. He also says, if you look down there in verse 2 of chapter 4, he sees seven pipes going to the seven lamps. So you got seven lamps, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then to each one of these pipes, there are pipes going to the bowl that's on top. Now I'm going to jump through and show you the description here. All right, so this is, this is a, a description. This is showing what he's looking at, what he thinks he's, what he's seeing uh, in this. These seven pipes or tubes or channels, one translation uses the word sprouts, are running to each of the lamps. So here in this picture, you have seven lamps with seven pipes. Now, Unger, Feinberg, MacArthur, and Wearsby see the reading as seven to each seven. 
That's the original Hebrew. That means it would actually be 7 times 7, 49. So there would be seven pipes going to each seven lamp. That would be 49 pipes running to this system. So this picture, if, if this picture is just taking the number seven as seven, however, there would be, if the picture would be overwhelming, if you put 49 pipes going seven to each one of these seven things. And I believe that that's why their Hebrew reads seven to each seven. These tubes are not normal. Nowhere in all of the scripture with the temple and the tabernacle is there said to be tubes or conduits connected in any way to any of the furniture. These tubes will play an important role in the picture of this contraption and what it's going to do for Zechariah. Let's keep working on. Next he sees in verse 3, and two olive trees by it. Look down Zechariah 4 verse 3. And I saw two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the one on the left side of the bowl. And there's a picture representing two olive trees that are standing one on one side and one on the other. What do olive trees produce? Olives. Okay. All right. You, somebody went the step further. First, they produce olives. And then from olives, the majority of, of all of, in the first century, of, of, of the use of any lamp, household lamp, ceremonial lamp, temple lamp, or any lamp, 90% of the production of oil in the first century from the Holy Land came from olive trees. In fact, um, I have some olive wood in my office, and if you take out the olive wood, olive wood has to be, well, something I read has to be um, set aside for 40 years before they can make a, a, um, a, an article with it or a piece of furniture with it. You know why? Because there's so much oil in the wood. It takes that long. And still, they have found olive uh, branches that have gone years, thousands of years back that still have the fresh olive oil smell on the inside of, of, the, uh, of the olive wood itself because olive uh, trees have a lot of oil, a lot of sap, if you want to say it, both in the olives and in the tree itself. So what we have here is we have two trees, one on the right hand and one on the left. They are the source of the oil for the lamps. All right? They're the main source of the oil for the lamps. These trees seem to produce oil without any person having to squeeze out the olives or the branches. So you got it connected, the olive tree that pours into the little bowl, and then the bowl uh, that pours down there. And there are two pipes running from the tree to the bowl. How do you say, well, pastor, where did you get that? Look down at verse 12. And I answered and said unto him, What are these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? So not only do you have 49 um, tubes going to each one of these lamps, you also have two golden uh, pipes coming to the tree itself. And this is like, this is a vision that just kind of gets um, more and more complicated. Here's the picture. You have a seven lamp menorah that has a giant bowl on top of it that seems to be filled with oil. 
from two olive trees that are producing the oil all by themselves. Then you have these elaborate tubes running from the tree to the bowl, from the bowl down out of the bowl to the seven stands. All of these tubes and all of this oil and all of this contraption has so much supply. It, it's um, uh, it, the, the pipes are overwhelming this lamp. This thing all works without any person or human pumping system. It's all gravitational. So you got the, the gravity up here. What's running the oil? Gravity's running the oil. That's why it's above the lamp. Coming out of the tree. That nobody's squeezing the, olive, the oil out into the bowl. It's just doing it itself. In other words, it's a robot. You say, well, pastor... You, I'm going to go Google this on online. I'm going to put it on the Pastor said there's robots in the Bible. Well, no, that's, that is what I said, but it's automatic. The bowl being on top, gravity pulling the oil down into the lamps, constant supply of oil from the tree. There is no need for a priest. No pitchers, no bowl to be brought in. It all works automatically. Is that not a robot? Okay. That's what it seems to me. John MacArthur states this. The graphic picture is of a limitless supply of oil that automatically, without any human agent, flows from the tree to the bowl to the lamps. Unger wrote long before he did, and said this, the numerous channels also suggest the meticulously careful and copious conduits of oil to each lamp so that all seven lamps shine with their fullest possible brilliance. And no one's needed to work the system. It does it all by itself. Now let's just think about oil itself here just for a moment. Unger states, oil is a symbol of the work in the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Scripture. The oil in the temple was to be a symbol of the Spirit of God. Oil was used in the anointing of three offices in the Old Testament. The office of priest. Moses was to anoint Aaron and his sons with oil. The office of prophet. Samuel and those who were to anoint Prophets following that were to be anointed with oil. And when Samuel was to anoint the king, King Saul and King David, and any king after it, he was to anoint them with oil. It was a symbol of God's spirit and power that was poured out upon them. Anytime oil is represented in the Old Testament in connection with God and the temple, it has a symbolism of the empowerment and presence of the spirit of God. Turn over to the book of Joel, Joel chapter 2. You're going to have to go back a few in, um, in your minor prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. So that helps you to find a little bit. Look in Joel chapter 2 and verse 28 and 29. In the prophecy of the coming of, of God, notice what he says. And it shall come to pass, in verse 28, 28 afterward, talking about in the future, that I will pour out. You got, a, you got a pitcher, you got a bowl, and he's going to pour out. What is he going to pour out? This oil. No, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. 
Notice what he said in verse 29. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaidens, in those days I will pour out my spirit. Notice the connection of pouring out is in connection to a symbolic fashion of pouring out the oil of the spirit. This was a promise that was given to Israel. Now, go back to Zechariah and see in verse 4 what Zechariah says after he sees this contraption. And so I answered and I spake to the angel that talked with me and saying, What are these, my Lord? Zechariah has never seen something like this and he's puzzled just like I am puzzled. I sure am glad whoever did that, I, I gave a credit to whom credit was due, whoever that guy's name was. Yeah, there you go, Paul, somebody uh, down the bottom. that Put this picture because it just sure did help me out to be able to see it. I hope it helped you out too, even though I added and muffled the, the vision by adding 49 pipes, okay, the, to this. It just helps you. Can you imagine what Zechariah is seeing and trying to understand this thing? Uh, have you ever been confused about what God says? Well, you're not alone because Zechariah did. And you're not alone because the disciples did. Can I just remind you on two occasions in John chapter 2 and verse 22, when Jesus talked about his death and resurrection to his disciples, his disciples did not understand and the Bible specifically says they did not understand until he resurrected. And on the way on to, to Emmaus, two disciples were completely confused until Jesus opened unto them the scripture and explained to them and the words that he had spoken uh, years before. It automatically, it's like, oh, I, di I didn't even think about that. All right, it's like, I didn't even understand. John chapter 12 and verse 16, the Bible said, and these things his disciples did not understand. So sometimes in reading the Bible, we don't understand. That's okay. Look at verse 5. And the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what, you, what these be? It, it, it seems like the angel's irritated that he asked him the question. Look at it. Don't you see what it is? He's like, uh, yeah, it looks like a robot. Okay, and, and uh, the, angel said, the angel says, don't you understand what you're seeing? And Zechariah kind of with this little irritation, no, I wouldn't have asked you. I didn't. Okay, maybe I just put my own little um, irritation there in verse 5. But it'll happen again in, um, in verse 12 and 13. Look at verse 12. What are these two olive branches? And the angel answered, verse 13, me and said... Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, no, my Lord. Okay, I wouldn't have asked you if I didn't know. Okay, to some extent, here's this. The indication is that Zechariah is, is puzzled by what he's looking at. He feels like he's at a science fair. And he's looking at this contraption that, that is, is interesting and he's never seen it before. Now, some have indicated that Zechariah is not confused at what he's seeing, but on the actual application of what he's seeing. He's seen a menorah before. He knows what oil is. He knows about fuel. He knows about olive trees. He's a priest, but he doesn't know how this fits to his situation. The angel responds to him and answers his question. Now, I'm, I'm interested, and I mentioned this last week, and I don't want to belabor the point. But the angel is sparking Zechariah's curiosity uh, to bait him into continuing to search. And I want to just say this, and I, I closed last week with this, so I want to just say it again. We must do our part 
in studying and reading the Bible, there's a responsibility that we have. But in the end, God must give us his spirit to illumine our minds to understand what God's word is. I'm not talking about some ecstatic, you know, shaking and moving and the spirit comes on us and then all of a sudden we get these prophecies and we start jibber-jabbing. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, is the Holy Spirit and God's power on his side that takes the word of God, which is inspired without error, and opens our minds so that it fills into our heart and becomes a lamp and we know what to do with it. And Zechariah is seeing this thing and he's saying, Lord, I know what I'm seeing with my eyes, but I don't know what to do with it. And, and the angel is saying, that's okay because I'm going to tell you. And God is going to reveal it to you. And I, I told you last week, that's possibly the point of the whole vision itself. Let's move on to verse 6. Then he answered and spake unto me saying, this is the word of the Lord. Unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Now, this is, this is the key to the whole vision, is verse 6. This is the message, and he's given specifically to Zerubbabel. Some have indicated Zerubbabel is the leader of, of Israel. He's in line for the throne. He's not the king, but he is in the line of Davidic king, kingship. He is their governor. He's called in Ezra the governor. He's called in Haggai the governor. And uh, so he's the, the civic leader. Joshua in chapter 3, the one who was clothed in the... He's the high priest. He's the religious leader. Zerubbabel is the, uh, the, the civic leader. He's the political leader. He's the one that stands in as the king. And he's, he's making sure that the job of the temple is being built. He's, make, he's making sure policy is being fulfilled. He's standing in the role of the king. Some have indicated that he was probably discouraged from his work. He was probably overwhelmed by what he needed to, to do. He had few helpers. Many of those helpers had been captives in Babylon. He had few resources. The resources that he did have, he had to carry on his back from Babylon. Now, he's waiting to send word back to get more finances so he can continue. On top of all that, Ezra and Haggai tell us that he had opposition from the surrounding villages and the surrounding um, Canaanites who didn't want him to continue the work that was going on and were upset with him. So he's overwhelmed by the task at hand. I wonder if he thinks, how am I ever going to get this job finished? So this verse is key to the entire vision and don't miss it. So he says here, um, it's not by might. The word, the Hebrew word might can literally uh, read military strength or financial means. It can be translated army of soldiers or army of bankers. This seems to be a collective might. In other words, what, what's going to happen here, the work of God does not, uh, is not accomplished by means of human numbers, whether that's manpower or financial power. It's not by might. How are battles won in the Old Testament, in the ancient world, by, by Nebuchadnezzar or the Pharaoh? It's won by the number of people you had on the battlefield, by the number of chariots you had and horses you had, by how much finance you had behind you to, to, to finance the campaign. 
How much does God need to win an, a battle? 300? How about one? Like David. Okay, it's not, it's not about numbers. It's not by power. The Hebrew word power means ability. It's the same word used of Samson who had physical strength, physical power. Often back then, just as today, we look to one person to be our answer. Someone who is a gifted person. Someone who's got a lot of talents. A general, a politician. Maybe someone that had the ability. And I'm sure Zerubbabel looked around and saw his meager crew and saw himself. And he lacked the energy. And he said, I don't think I can get this done. I'm just not gifted enough. I don't have enough people. I just don't have enough finances. I don't have an army around me to accomplish the task. And the Lord reminds him, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it is by my spirit. You see, the work of the Lord happens through spiritual means. From the person of the Holy Spirit. So here you look at this contraption, this robot that is in front of him, this automatic lampstand that has all these arms and everything like that, and there's no priest. There's nobody pouring anything in. It does it all by itself. There's no army. There's no resources. There's no, it, it's just there, and it's working. And in fact, it has so much, it has more than it actually needs. Why do you need 49 tubes? Seven would do. Why do you need seven tubes? One would do. Why do you need a giant bull? Why do you need two olive trees? One olive tree is enough. You see what I mean? The whole symbol of what is being pictured here, it is an overwhelming supply. And what is that supply? It's not manpower. It's not finances. It's not giftedness. It is one person, one person only. The Holy Spirit of God. It's not by might that anything is going to be accomplished. It's not by power that the task is going to be finished, Zerubbabel, it is going to be by my spirit. Now, I don't want you to negate the fact that God uses our gifts. That God expects us to work, to put our part in. That doesn't mean we just sit back and say, okay, Lord, it's all yours. I'm not going to do anything. No, no, no. That's, that's not what... He, he, he's encouraging him Get out there. I know you don't have many, many out there. I know you don't have a lot of finances. I know you, you don't have a lot of giftedness. But I picked you not because of your power, not because of your might, not because of your finances, but I picked you because through you, I'm going to give you my spirit. And if anything is accomplished, it's done because my spirit is in you. If you don't understand any of the details of the vision, that's fine. But get this, you are facing a task in your spiritual journey that you cannot accomplish in your flesh. You have a task every day that you are going to need a supernatural oil to pump you up. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand in His strength alone. The arm of flesh will, what? Fail you. You dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer, where duty calls or danger be never wanting there. Martin Luther wrote this. Did we in our own strength confide? 
our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabaoth, His name from age to age the same, and He must win the battle. How sad it is that so many churches and believers attempt by so many committees and programs and boards and staff and plans and contests and budgets and materials into reaching people and doing the work of the ministry. How much of what we do is the arm of the flesh? You see, it's not that God doesn't use our efforts. He does. But it is the power of the omnipotent God who accomplished the task that we cannot. Notice in verse 7, he draws his attention to, and our time is fleeting. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, thou shalt become a plain. Why does he address the mountain? Because he's pointing out to Zerubbabel that he has obstacles. That's what mountains are. When you're in a building project, like across the street over here, and you've got a mountain, what do you got to do? Before you can build the buildings, before you can put the homes up, before you can build the basements, what do you got to do? You got to get the big diggers and the earth movers and you got to move the mountain. And Zechariah is facing a mountain and he's got a task ahead in front of him, or Zerubbabel does, and, and he's, he's overwhelmed by what he's facing. What are your mountains today on Wednesday? What are the tasks that you've had to accomplish or that you're facing that are just too big for you to handle? And basically, what God is telling Zerubbabel is he says, with the power of the Spirit, I can do the impossible. I can take the mountain and I can make it flat just like a plane. God is telling him, get to work. I can move your mountains if I choose to. And in the end, everyone will rejoice and know that it is by the hand of the Lord that it was done. Look at verse 9. And the hands of Zerubbabel were laid the foundations of this house. His hands shall also furnish it. Notice God is going to use Zerubbabel's hands. But you shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. In the end, who does it? The Lord of hosts. Notice in verse 10, just quickly, he says here the work of the Lord as he talking to Zerubbabel in verse 10. Who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and see the plummet or the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And whose seven? They are the seven eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. The word despise means to mock or to scorn. You see, some were seeing the work of Zerubbabel as insignificant from Solomon's temple. They were despising the current work because it looked too small. Yet God was pleased even though it was small. A little song that we sing, little is much when God is in it. You see, God loves to use small things. That's why I'm standing up here. He likes to do that because it's not many mighty, not many wise. Because in the end, when it all comes down to it, when you, when you send out a teenage boy to fight a champion and a whole army of Philistines and with one stone, everyone turns around and says, it wasn't him that did it. 
Because it wasn't by might, it wasn't by power, it wasn't by finances, it wasn't his armor because he couldn't even wear Saul's armor. It had to be supernatural. And it was God. And the only person in the battlefield who recognized that truth was David himself. You come to me with spear and with sword, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of... Same name of God that's used in this verse. Lord of hosts. So, as we see this wonderful picture of what is going on here, look, uh, look at verse 11. Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees? Upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side. I read you those verses already and I answered again. He said it twice. What be these two olive branches? Which through the two golden pipes emptied the golden oil out of themselves. And he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. And he said unto me, or he said, uh, Then said he, These are the two anointed ones. Or the actual Hebrew is sons, Ben. Uh, sons of oil. These are the ones carrying, these are the sons who are carrying oil. That's the way it reads. That stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And then the vision stops. All right. And somebody's watch clicked because it's 8 o'clock. So you'll have to just come back for who the two witnesses are. Father, thank you for the time that we have this evening. And um, Lord, thank you that what we face on a daily basis, we are not left without the power of God to accomplish it. Uh, Lord, it's, it's a difficult task. We are fighting a spiritual battle. and We can't do it with flesh and blood. But we, we realize that our enemy is a spiritual enemy of principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world. Spiritual wickedness in high places. And for us to accomplish what we're going to do, we need a strength, we need an energy, we, we need a moving that is going to help us get up and tell our loved one about Jesus. To help us use our gifts and abilities to get us through the mountains that we're facing, the uphill battle. Uh, the physical ailment, the spiritual ailments, what, whatever we're dealing with, we have to have the Spirit of God. Now, I know this vision has a time and a place within the economy of God in the time of Zerubbabel and Zechariah, and it has a place in the future millennial kingdom and what you're going to do through your spirit then. But I, I can't help but see a, a spiritual application for us to understand your perfect seven eyed spirit who sees what we're doing and what we're going through we are the temple of the lord in the new testament and it is through your spirit that you both teach us truth as john says and you help us and empower us to fight our battles and use our gifts and lord we cannot go through a day without that spirit filling our life and our thoughts and giving us the energy and power to do, being a mother or a father, a husband or a wife, a teenager, whatever it is. We must pour into the Word of God and we must uh, depend upon the Spirit of God to help us in our journey. We can't do it without you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
All right, thank you. You are dismissed tonight. Don't forget some of our prayer requests that we have in the prayer bulletin.